Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. Today is Renaissance Day. We've got with us Mary Hollingsworth, who is a historian and author specializing in the Renaissance. She has published many books on the subjects, including books like The Medici, The Cardinal's Hat and The Conclave, 1559. But we're here to talk about her new book today, which is Princes of the Renaissance, which will be out very, very soon. Welcome, Mary. Hi. We are really looking, this is such an epic book. The, the size of this book is just, is, is amazing. I'm amazed at how hard you've worked on your research for this book. <laughs> well, it does, it, it, it's, I mean, a lot of it I've done, I mean, I suppose I've, I've, I've taught the Renaissance, I've studied it and I've taught it for so long that quite a lot of the stuff is just embedded in, you know, I've just learned it over the years. Um, but it is, it is a very complicated, one of the, it's just a very complicated period and lots of you know strange and lots of interconnected events and that's why I thought that when I was writing um this book that I would um instead of just doing individual princes chapter by chapter that I would match up princes with with either another prince or a right I mean a rival or a, a brother or an, a, a, in one particular case a wife um just to give you some sort of sense of of um the kind of I don't know, life that was lived by these princes. I love it. We've got so many princes involved in this book. <laughs> it was so different. But they're nearly all related as well. <laughs> oh, it's it's so complicated. So I kind of thought, I thought to myself, we need to pick at least two. Um, so I asked you to pick two, which ones are your favourite out of this? Because I, personally, I couldn't pick. There were, something was always happening left, right and centre. So for me, it was very difficult. And um, we've gone first with um, Ludovico Gonzaga. Um, so let's start with the family. So who were they and where were they located? Okay, so the Gonzaga family um, are the rulers of Mantua, which is a small, um, sorry, was, it's, it's, it's currently, it, does, it, it exists, it's a town now, but it's a part of Italy. But it, in those days, it was an independent state, a very small independent state, quite wealthy because of the, the incredibly good agricultural land of the Po Valley. But it's a small state stuck in between um, two bigger ones, so Milan on one side and Venice on the other. And the key point of the survival of the Gonzagas depended on how they balance getting on with these two neighbours who are quite often at war with each other. And they, they um, uh, the Gonzagas took over 
power in Mantua in 1328 and um, and very much thanks to Lodovico and his political nows, um, the they you know the, this tiny state survived and flourished right the way through the Renaissance. It's quite it's one of the it's a really famous center of Renaissance culture and well worth well worth visiting although it does have to be it's, it's not a major tourist center which is probably rather a nice thing about it but it's, it's a lovely little town not such a good thing it's very hot it's in the middle it's um it's built in not exactly it's yes on swamps in, which in the in the in the renaissance of course were fantastic hunting grounds so they would go off after duck and and um various wildfowl it was a sort of you know one of the things that people enjoyed doing was hunting and um but it didn't make for a very healthy place. It was quite damp in the winter and extremely muggy in the summer. I quite like that. I mean, this Ludvico's his wife. His wife is is quite extraordinary, isn't she? Barbara. Yes, she's Barbara von Hohenzollern. Thank you for helping. And also called Barbara Barbara of Brandenburg, and she's an extraordinary person. Um, I mean, she arrives. She's a you know she's a German princess. She's the niece of the emperor and she arrives in, um, she's betrothed to Ludovico. Um, she's about 15 years younger than him. I can't remember exactly. And she arrives in Mantua at the age of 12, speaking no Italian at all. Imagine a 12 year old speaking no Italian at all. She's allowed one or two of her old German um, um members of her household come with her but mostly she has an italian household she's goes immediately goes to school with her to be brothers and sisters-in-law who are the young ludovica's younger younger siblings and they're all being taught um by quite a famous humanist in in a school that, that ludovica's father set up in mantua and she said so she's straight away she goes to school and then um a couple of years later quite young um the um marriage is consummated and she produces 14 children for him wow 14 yeah one four that's quite a lot of children (laughs) wow i Um, just i'm I'm thinking of this whole she's kind of growing up in a way in in the household with him yeah yes and that's good because she really really when she when 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 her husband becomes um marquis after the death of his father she really knows where she is and she really knows what she's doing you know she really understands how mantuan culture and and all this kind of thing so um you know so that is that's that's impressive and she's she's a very redoubtable character i mean she's what survives amazingly is quantities of letters um the gonzaga um the gonzaga archives in mantua are just you know there there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters um written and there are quite a lot of them from her to her husband and vice versa i'm going to ask um, um did, were they in love with each other I, I know it's kind of it's an odd question to ask but do we know no i don't i i'm not sure uh, there, there's no there, he didn't really have mistresses it does i think they probably they were very, very close. I mean, for example, one of the letters, she, um, uh, one of the letters says it's, it's he's he's gone off. Um, Ludovica goes off to do uh, business to go to one of his other, you know, sort of palaces, and he, he he for some reason he doesn't say anything to his dog or doesn't take his dog with him. And Barbara writes to him and says says you know you must have left this morning without saying goodbye to your dog. 
um, because he's just been wandering around the palace, looking in every room, looking for you. You sort of, there's something unbelievably domestic. The domestic detail implies a huge, huge affection. I couldn't, you couldn't. Um, and also trust, which is another important point, because he, he, uh, Ludovica earns his, earns his um, income as a mercenary soldier. So he's quite often away and fighting. And while he's away fighting, she is in charge of running the state. Oh, wow. So, you know, she, you've got to trust your wife. And there's one particular occasion when he was when he was um, wounded um, uh, and he when he was, he was and, he, and it was very cold. <laughs> he sends a letter to his wife saying, please, could you send me some? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not very well. I'm getting I'm, I've managed to get away and I'm on my way home. But can you send me something to keep me warm and also a cushion because I've hurt my leg and it really, really painful to ride. And it's sort of. I don't know. There's something. That, yeah, I, I. The answer to your question is, they they loved each other. Whether they were, um, whether it was a great passion, I don't think so. But on the other hand, it was a very successful marriage partnership. So moving on to another relationship that he has. So it would be with his father. How did that go? Now that wasn't good, and that was interesting because he was his father's. He was the eldest son. And he was his father's heir, but he was quite shy, quite gauche um, as a young man, very bookish. Um, yep, shy, quite serious. And his brother, that next, the next, his yeah, his the younger brother that was next to him um, was completely different. You know, sporty, outgoing, jolly. You know, sort of brilliant jouster, and you know, really good at all the sort of you know stuff that a Renaissance prince was supposed to be, and. Um, and it, it, there's evidence that that um, the father at one point um, changed his will and asked, you know, it's just that um, D, well, just you know, cut Ludovico out of the out of the equation. And it, he did get he did get it and he did get it in the end. Although he did end up having to fight fight his his um, his younger brother, which was must, can't have been very easy, but. Um, you know, because his father was a completely different character, but actually Ludovico was a clever, you know, a clever ruler. He wasn't a sort of, I mean, you see pictures of him and you, you know, he doesn't look, he's not swashbuckling or, you know, he's not, you know, he's not sort of big and, and he's, yeah, he's slight and, you know, thin and just nice man, but not what you call a, you know, not, he doesn't look like a powerful soldier. And he obviously didn't get on that well with his father. He obviously preferred his books to um, riding around and doing jousting and hunting and that kind of thing. At least his wife was on his side. Exactly. And his wife was definitely on his side. And um, I mean, he yeah, when he died, he left five sons, five sons and three grandsons. I mean, you know. But it's, it's yes, I think it's a, it was a pity about his father. I think he was thirty something when his father died, so he did, you know, he did have quite a long time of being well, not like Prince Charles, obviously, but you know, he had quite a long time of hanging around. So we've got uh, we've got the Sforzas now. I mean, we've we hear this name. I mean, I've heard this name in, even in Polish history. Where do they come into into this whole part of the history? Now that is interesting. Yes, this is an important point. This is one of the problems, in a sense, that Ludovico had to deal with, because in fourteen um, 
fifty, the um the the Duke the, the Duke of Milan, the Visconti Duke of Milan, died and the um the idea was that um he didn't have a son and so he was he had a daughter an, a, a, an illegitimate daughter and he that he persuaded that the the it was the daughter was engaged to and then by this stage married to um francesco sforza who was a relatively a very another very interesting character completely you know, sort of a fairly brutish soldier completely uncultured um sort of thug really and quite a vicious and you know, aggressive soldier who endlessly fought um uh the his particular enemy was um the king of naples anyway in 1450 he besieged milan and took over of um, you know basically insisted uh, forced his his way into the city and declared himself duke but the um emperor refused to recognize him and Ludovico was faced with either did he did Ludovico go with the emperor, who was also his um, sovereign lord, and equally um, be aggressive towards Sforza, or did he make a, an ally of, of um, Francesco Sforza? And that is uh, that, and he decided to do the latter, which was quite a significant moment because um, it meant that it it well it just changed the slightly changed the balance of power in northern Italy because he was, you know, he was slightly more on Milan's side than the non-Venice's side. But, that, you know, anyway, but that did, that was it. He managed as a as a politician. It was quite a successful move. I was going to ask, what's the outcome of that? Well, Sforza becomes, Sforza becomes um, Duke of Milan in name. I mean, he, sorry, strictly de facto Duke of Milan, despite the fact that he's never recognised and then he has a bit, a bit like Ludovico. He has a, a large quantity of sons, and one of whom, um, uh, one of whom inherits, or and then, sorry, yes, one of whom dies. His and the eldest one dies, and his son inherits. But the his the uncle, so the, the Ludovico, sorry, Francesco Sforza's son, <laughs> decides that he wants the power. So he just says, right, sorry, I'm actually, I'm Duke and you're not to the, to the, to the nephew who is rightfully Duke and, and locks him up. I mean, and then, I mean, he humiliates him. I mean, it's sort of embarrassing. He's a bully. Um, but from your point of view, the Polish point of view, the um, Francesco Sforza was very, success, was very successful in marrying his daughters off into all the kind of, you know, all the royal, all the, sorry, royal ducal princely houses, including, interestingly, the um, king of Poland married one of the daughters. Another daughter married into the, um, um, uh, married, yes, another, yes, they, the the main marriage that linked them was the the marriage between the Swartzer daughter and the, heir to the king of um naples anyway the point is he there, there came a point where swartz was related by marriage to practically every um royal house including the french but not the english that's very interesting but i i was going to ask just to backtrack just a touch um you spoke about the relationship between him and his father and his wife but what about his brother? I mean, I from what I can assume, they did not get on because they were polar opposites. 
Yes, exactly. And what happened was that the um, uh, during the, the the basically during the battles between establishing the relationship, re-establishing his the relationship between Mantua and Milan under the Sforzas and um, um, and and Venice, um, the brother decides to line up with Venice and tried to oust his to oust Ludovico from Mantua um, with the help of the Venetian um, army. So, so poor old Ludovico has to fight his his brother, and um, he his, he uh, he wins. But the brother and the brother shortly after that dies, but not not in in an unconnected manner. And there's, there was never any suggestion of poison or anything like that. I think you know he died of ill you know ill health. We need to, if we're talking about the Renaissance, we have to bring in Catholicism and the Pope. And he is he is going to make an appearance in, in, in the next prince as well. But Pius II, he takes on a very, very important role in this part of history, doesn't he? Especially with Ludovico. Yes, I think the important point about Pius II is that um he is a Pope who with a a, a mission to enhance the power of his own family. Um who are Sienese, not particularly grand. And so he makes allies, particular um, allies with various different people and for various different reasons, some some of which are to do with, with this dynastic, um, dynastic ambitions. Um, but in turn, but Ludovic, for Ludovico, um, the, what he, sorry, what, I'm getting this the wrong way around. What Pius II is trying to do is A, to um, enhance his own family's dynastic chances, if you like. And the other thing he's trying to do, which I know is your next question, is to um, is to counter the Turkish threat. And so to call it, he calls the crusade. And what, it, what Ludovico Gonzaga does, which is quite clever, is he offers to host the um, um, congress that that Pius II wants to hold because he wants it to come for the whole of Christendom. He wants um, you know so Northern Europe to come to this um, to this congress. So representatives from France, England, you know, and Poland, and the and particularly the Empire. And and Ludovico uses the excuse of you know the, the link between his wife and the emperor to um to say that you know this is a, it's a big good thing to have it in Mantua and also Mantua is that much closer obviously significantly closer to the empire than Rome is um but what the important point of yes that's that's so that's why um he cut he hasn't past second has an important role to play with the Gonzagas because he brings the whole papal court to Mantua um but as I say, Pius II has two two agenda two items on his agenda. So, um, and it, he is the first, I suppose, of what you call, what we call the nepotist popes. The Renaissance popes were notorious for enhancing their families, and quite a lot of the book is. I mean, every single chapter in the book is about one pope or another trying to get his family into 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 power and other you know other people out of power so the um it's worth remembering at this point that the uh, papacy has only just come back to italy after a hundred and something years when it was resident in france 
at in Avignon. There's a whole, there's a big papal, that's where the papal um, palace in Avignon um, became so important. Um, and it's a very, it's a relatively, it's an important development from Pius II onwards that increasingly cardinals were Italian. And from, there's only been two non Italian popes after Pius II. So the first one was at the beginning of the 16th century, and the second one was John Paul II, which is quite, that's a big stretch. Every pope otherwise has been Italian. I, uh, yeah, I only just realised that John Paul II. Wow. Yeah. Oh, Poland, Poland got in there. Sorry, just. Yeah. To... <laughs> no, no, I didn't. I should, I should have said, I should have spe- specified. No, but it's quite, it's really, I mean, it's, it's quite, you know, there aren't many um, things that you can say, but, how, you know, that is, that is centuries of, you know, Italians dominating the papacy. And obviously, and they still do. I'm really actually looking forward to discussing the next the next prince only because it just these popes are just they're mad absolutely mad these popes aren't they <laughs> Yes well if you forget that they they don't they don't behave like you want them to behave as spiritual leaders of the Christian world what they behave much more like um petty sort of like kings I mean you know sort of that's their behavior is much more of a secular much more secular than um than spiritual okay of course they were powerful you know i mean if you had the pope on your side then there was an awful lot you could do and if you didn't have the pope on your side you were a bit you know stuck or in as in um henry VIII's case you just said well sorry go away (laughs) rather less politely (laughs) so my quick question before we jump into the church coming back into the into the story again is the turkish threat um sort of subsided do they get rid of the turkish threat no no the important point about the um the turkish threat is it's the ottoman the ottomans establish um their sort of power base in the middle east and in 1453 they conquer um constantinople which is christian at that stage was a christian city and it's still it's and a very very important trading post because it's you know because of of its position between east and west and in fact trade continues and that isn't really a problem but the but the ottomans first spread um all the way across north africa and then into the middle east and then up through the balkans into the um and and and, and right well right up to vienna i mean they you know, they take budapest but um and the um and it, the, the, the Turkish threat is a threat until the seventeenth century, eighteenth century. Um, you know, always on the eastern borders of you know of of, of Christian Europe. I'm going to throw in a, a Polish thing here only because I can. <laughs> I'm not very. No, no, you should. Only because I'm not, I'm not very good at this part of Polish history. Obviously, being a twentieth century historian, but when you said Vienna, all I can think of is Jan Sobieski. Battle yes. Against- no, exactly. No, I don't, and the Turks do. I mean, the, sorry, the Poles do have quite a significant role to play. I mean, you know, the Turks. Are, sorry, the Poles are definitely, you know, a significant power in um, uh, in Europe in Renaissance Europe. There are wonderful descriptions of Polish embassies coming to Rome, and they, you know, the the, the Romans are absolutely amazed by these the clothes that, that the Polish um, nobles wear, and also the furs that you. That they, you know, that they could bring beaver fur and things like that, which you just simply couldn't get in Italy. 
Oh, well, um, it was, it's it's a really kind of, you know, it was a really it, yeah important place. And also it was a strong, to, um, you know, Poland was a stronghold even in the 16th century, a, a, you know, a Catholic stronghold. We do, do you know what? We should definitely do a podcast, I think, uh, discussing how the Italians perceived the Poles in the Renaissance. I think that would that would be an excellent podcast to go on to the pole position, I think. <laughs> OK, let's do it. But right, let's go. We're going back to Renaissance Italy, not Renaissance Poland. Um, so the church is then involved. I mean, again, this, this church doesn't the church does not stop getting involved at this point, does it? No, no. And it, 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 as I say, it just gets increasingly secular. I mean, one of the significant points that happens with Ludovica Gonzaga is that in as a reward for um, hosting the Congress of Mantua, um, uh, Ludovica's younger son, second son is made a cardinal aged 14, far too young, um, and establishes a pattern whereby the ruling class the ruling princes princely houses of italy get a cardinal and therefore get a say in the choice of who is made pope and also um in um in in defining church policy and that has a that, you know that is a that is a very significant impact um it, you know pius takes the first past second takes takes the first steps um, but again, is this the church as a secular power, not as a as a spiritual um, figurehead? We're, we're rushing through a little bit about Ludvika, and, and the reason behind this is that there is so much more information, and I want you to go out and buy Mary's book rather than we get <laughs> everything on a plate here. So do bear with us. So we're now going to talk about Ludvika when he dies. I mean, he dies. What kind of legacy does he leave behind then? Well, his legacy is quite staggering because actually the one thing that we haven't talked about um, is the uh, one of the things, what the other spur, the other thing that the Congress of Mantua did um, was um, a lot of a lot of the the foreigners, particularly the Roman cardinals who came to Mantua, could not believe how uncomfortable it was. You know, it was a filthy place, and it wasn't even paid. The roads weren't paved, and the accommodation was very, very limited and they complained about it or they were quite rude about it. And um, and as a result, um, Ludovico was persuaded or decided, Ludovico decided and was helped by a very a, a famous um, architect who was actually a member of the papal court, uh, but not as an architect, as, a, as, an, as, um, as an abbreviator, letter writer. He um, and Leon Battista Alberti, for anybody who's um, interested, the important point is that Ludovico um, gets him to design new churches and completely does up, you know, over the following um, 20 years before he dies, does up Mantua in a very um, in a very impressive way. And so alongside the stable succession with, you know, hundreds of sons and the sons and the grandsons, he also leaves behind a legacy of art and architecture, which is completely unparalleled. Um, things like, for example, um, not only Alberti's churches, but he also employed Mantegna, Andrea Mantegna, as a painter. And we have, for various historical reasons, not entirely um, healthy, not yet, Basically, we the queen in the Queen's collection is Mantegna's most famous um, series of paintings called the Triumphs of Caesar, which are these huge, great canvases which decorated a big hall in one of the in one of the palaces. 
and just depicts the triumph of Julius Caesar entering Rome. So there's sort of they're just um, chariots with piled high with booty and sort of and slaves and musicians and these and but they they're they're on display at Hampton Court. They're really very very spectacular canvases. So so he left. So his his legacy is is stable succession and a, a quite seriously sensible political background um and also this art artistic cultural um um succession um legacy which is quite critical or his, you know, his son his sons his grandsons his great grandsons great 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 grandsons and all you know all contribute um you know then then the following in the 16th century I, it was one of the i very nearly chose uh ludovico's um great-grandson Federico, who's the first Duke of Mantua, who is the most staggering, you know, he was his, he, he, he was a patron of Titian and, you know, just an amazing artistic legacy again. And it is, that's why it's such an amazing place to visit. There's so much really beautiful stuff to see. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So our next, our next um, prince is actually related to Ludvico, isn't he? Yes, in a typical sort of round the world. So Ippolito, so Ippolito's aunt is somebody called Isabella d'Este, who is in her own right very famous as a as a, a patron. And uh, Isabella was um, Ludovico's great granddaughter. Sorry, granddaughter in married to Ludovico's grand grandson. Um, and they're they're distant. There are there are other sort of relations. Sort of, I mean, the two the two families are very similar. They're exactly they you know they they both have the the Ferrara is not very far away from Mantua, and it's also you know it's a bigger state Ferrara, but it's not um, it's not a, it's not one of the the big big states. And um, you know they the, the families intermarried. Um, in the middle ages as well so they you know they they have blood together if you know what i mean and well we're now going to start talking about popes i'm really i'm really looking forward we're back talking about popes (laughs) this 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 one is all about popes and all about the catholic religion so first of all how did ippolito get involved in the church 
Art. He um, he's the second son of the of the Duke of um, of the Duke of Ferrara, and as a second son, he was destined or automatically destined for a career in the church. And he was massively helped by the fact that his uncle, who is also called Ippolito d'Este, um, was also a cardinal. So he had a sort of leg up to start with, and he got made Archbishop of Milan at the age of nine. Now Milan is a big see you know it's not that's not you know that's it's it's an important it was an important then still is uh, an important and large scene and, and that you know to have a f- nine-year-old boy as archbishop that says quite a lot about um <laughs> just, the no, state no. of the church at the time well they and the, the, the interesting point about these um about about Hippolito is that you know when he's made a cardinal in the 1534 Six thirty-eight. He it's is the big, you know, absolutely the sort of in the, the in the Renaissance, high Renaissance. And by the time he dies in fifteen seventy-two, you know, the Protestantism has um, decimated uh, the Church in Europe. I mean, you know, Europe is now split by fourteen fifteen seventy-two. Europe is completely split, half you know, Catholic, half Protestant. You know, the England has left um, the Church completely. Um, and so he, you know, his career is really fascinating because that he completely um, covers the whole of the the, the um, well, the whole is- issue of church reform. Um, I mean, I work I work on his papers. I, that's what I do my most of my proper research on. And um, he left behind two thousand letters, two hundred account books. I mean, you can. I mean, I, I can talk. Well, I, I'm not, you know, don't necessarily know an enormous, enormous amount about it. But you, know, you can, you can, you, you can learn. I mean, anything: clothes, um, horses, the price of candles, butter, um, sewage, um, medicine, breeding. Uh, it, I mean, you know, you ask, you know, and you you ask, and you can. It's really fascinating material. Anyway, so I know quite. That's he. I know much more about him on at a domestic level, um, and he. Uh, but yeah, he was. Des- the answer to your question is short and sweet. Is he was born into it, and I should actually say, by the way, which is slightly, um, which is an, an important point about Hippolyto, is that his mother was Lucretia Borgia. So his grandfather was Pope. Was Pope Alexander the Sixth. So in theory, he should become Pope, in theory. Well, I don't, I don't think the Pope, the, they didn't, they did fail to make the papacy hereditary. <laughs> um, although they definitely, the, the Farnese family definitely tried. Uh, and the Medici, there were two Medici Popes. Um, but no, no, I think Hippolyte wanted to be a Pope, but I'm sure we'll, you'll explain, we'll, I, I I'll explain. You're going to ask me later. I, I, I will explain later why. Anyway, so. So we've got uh, we, we, you just mentioned the, uh, the Medici. So the family yes. has come into this story as well. So first of all, inevitably. Yeah. So who was um, Cosimo Medici and why do him and Ippolito clash? Because th- there is a major clash, isn't there, between them? Yes. Major clash. I mean, there's a very it's it's. Um, they're two different families, okay, two different princely families. And um, 
1274, they took over power. They became um, uh, the rulers of, Ma- of um, Ferrara in 1274. The, the Medici became rulers, uh, sorry, dynastic, you know, in, dynastic, became princes in 1536. Um, sorry, Cosimo inherited in 1536, so 1532. So, you know, five centuries Sorry, three centuries. Anyway, my maths isn't very good. Um, but the point is that the Hippolyte comes from an old family, well-established um, princely family. Cosimo comes from a very, very, very new um, family um, who've only recently been um, raised to the nobility. And his ancestors are bankers. And that's, um, you know, they were also wealthy, but they were did not have a title. And the reason why they, there was no particular reason why they should clash, except that Cosimo, who was the most appalling, I mean, a- arrogant sort of man, was absolutely determined to be the most important, to be the leading um, no- noble in Italy. And he wanted to be he wanted to be to be titled King of Tuscany. Um, and therefore take precedence over all the other princely houses. And he started his campaign, but with the, by out persuading his, um, writing to his ambassador in France saying, you know, I, I, you've got to make sure, you know, you should be, we should be, we should take precedence over the um, ambassadors of Ferrara um, because, you know, f- uh, Florence is an older place than Ferrara, which is, it is true. But it's not, sorry, it's not the place, it's the house. That's what the, the, the essay say. Anyway, the, so it, Cosimo conducts, a, and I should just, this is where we get back to the church. Cosimo needs a pope who will do this. He needs a pope to, to um, appoint him, if you like, um, officially appoint him king of Tuscany. And the, um, and they, well, so the, the two men clash because they're, Cosimo deliberately um, picks a quarrel with the Este family. And then they, they then further clash over who should be made Pope. So um, does that make any sense? No, do it, it, you know what? It is so quarrelsome. This person, they want this and they want that, but they need this person to do it. So let's start a quarrel here. It, it it's just a mess at this time isn't it yeah absolutely and and also you know i mean it, it's not helped by various um different you know the different popes that get elected i mean over the over the period of Hippolyto and, and cosimo's clash um so the 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 pope that's elected in 1555 is paul the 4th who is as anti He's he's a he's a very aggressive um, reformist pope, but he is so deter- he's not prepared to have a um, he's a complete autocrat. He's not prepared to have a have a have a um, a council to reform the church, which is what people are demanding by this stage. He thinks he's going to reform it himself, and so he sets up the Inquisition and gives the Inquisition the power, sorry, he doesn't set it up, he gives the, it's it's already set up, and he gives the Inquisition the power to conduct a campaign against heresy. And heresy in the, you know, basically, it was people reporting their own, you know, their, you know, their enemies for not eating, people got into trouble for not eating meat, sorry, for eating 
meet on Fridays and I don't think you could quite get executed for that but you I mean there's a I mean the things that you could get executed for were very there was an awful lot anyway it was a very unpleasant time and Hippolito in fact is probably quite lucky because during the the, the conclave that um uh, at which Paul the Fourth was elected Cosmo tries to buy votes his his patrons are the kings of France so um he all his you know he's a he's bishop and, and or archbishop of an awful lot of very important sees in in France and he is the French candidate for election there's the um it's quite difficult to explain this succinctly but basically France and Spain and by Spain sorry Habsburg Spain and and so the Habsburgs rule Spain and the empire and the Valois rule France and they're Enmity is, you know, is is completely dictates sixteenth um, century European history. Paul the Fourth hates the Spanish with a kind of deadly loathing, and and therefore hates Cosimo because Cosimo has married the um, daughter of the Spanish viceroy in Naples. So this, so and and Hippolyto, he doesn't like Hippolyto either because Hippolyto. He accuses Hippolito of um, simony, of trying to buy votes in the conclave, which was unquestionably true. Henry, there's a letter saying, you know, he's uh, in his own hand writing to his brother saying, you know, and I've got I've got promises of, you know, 50,000, um, you know, ducats or something from the king of France. And, and you know, what with the money that you're you're going to give me as well, you know, I, I, there should be a very I should have a very good chance of election. You sit there going, what? Um, but in fact, he didn't get elected. Um, and the new Pope, um, Paul IV, accused him of simony, and which, of course, he was guilty of, and exiled him to Ferrara. So he had to pack all his stuff up from Rome and get moved to Ferrara for four years until, you know, wait till the Pope died. And in the meantime, quite a lot of his colleagues were sent, you know, some of them, some of them were caught up with the Inquisition. Uh, several were imprisoned. Um, some you know, various bishops and things were executed for having affairs. And there were, I mean, there were any, and, and anybody, one of the one of the cardinals was put in prison because his brother was fighting for the king of Spain. I mean, you wow. know, anyway. Um, hardcore. So, so actually, Polito was quite lucky that he wasn't in Rome. So you know, so that's lucked lucky. Out. Completely lucked out, didn't he, at that point? Yeah, yeah. No, he couldn't. You know, he just wasn't. He, you know, he was just out of just living up in Ferrara, doing a bit of fishing, going hunting, and eating a lot. And um, and he couldn't even. You know, the worst thing he he had to start selling his silver because he ran out. Of, he was running out of money because, of course, he got no income whatsoever from his um, French benefices because he, you know, because he'd been because he was put into exile. Anyway, then the Pope died suddenly, and Hippolyte came straight. You know, literally got the the news arrived on Saturday, and by Monday, the whole Hippolyte and his household were back on the road, going, you know, riding down to Rome with all their goods and things. He does. Um, he he tries for the papacy again, doesn't he? Then 
Yeah, no, no, he tries every time, and he this 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 is fifteen fifty nine. Um, this uh, particular conclave that after the death of Paul the Fourth, which is the subject of the book, the conclave, which went on for three and a half months, and absolutely, I mean, they were just people were really people were dying. Um, they had to fumigate the Sistine Chapel because the smell was so appalling. But it was a bedroom. I mean, it was a dormitory for twenty something cardinals. Just you know. Uh, it must the stench must have been absolutely appalling, um, and Apolito can't get it. He, he he's realised he's not get once he were, knows he isn't going to be elected, and that's partly because two of his the cardinals that supported him uh, die, and one is ill and so and has to leave. So he's he he opts out of the picture, and um, but then the question is he needs to elect somebody that who he will, you know, um, who he can, you know, who, who's going to help his career. And oddly, this is the only occasion where Ippolito and Cosimo um, end up on the same side. And the deal that they do, I mean, Cosimo is prepared to do anything, include lying, um, which he does. He tells, he tells, the, um, he gets the vote of, of, of several cardinals by telling one of them that their family um, who've been um, removed from office, I think is the only, in a rather dramatic way for various unspeakable crimes, not least murder. Um, and the, the the guy who's accused of murder, it's his brother is, is a cardinal. And um, Cosimo promises him that, you know, he'll be absolutely fine and not to worry. And he'll, you know, he'll have a, he'll get his, he'll get his duchy back. Um and he's, he says that he's got the Pope's prompt, the new Pope's promise that this will happen. And of course, the new Pope hadn't done anything of the sort and and, and um, tries the Cardinal and the brother and executes them both. Serves them right. But anyway, the, but um, equally, this the, from Cosimo's point of view, the, sec, the new Pope. So Paul IV is succeeded by Pius IV. Pius IV refuses point blank to give uh, to give Cosimo. Um, his title of king. So, um, so, but Hippolyto is, is, is massively in favour and um, and spends quite a lot of time in France, involved with the the French wars of religion there. Um, but you know, but anyway, so Hippolyte, so that's um, that's a bit unfortunate for it was a bit unfortunate for Cosimo. But so it meant that the following conclave, Hippolyte, um Cosimo was absolutely determined under. To do, we would do anything, whatever it took, to make sure that this, that the person he elected ensured the person that he elected or arranged to have elected um, um, will um, will you know will will grant his wishes. He doesn't. He doesn't win the next one, does he? At all? No, no, no. He never becomes pope. Um, but um, I, I think the thing about the thing about becoming it's not quite. When you say win, I mean the interesting thing is it's we always think of it as like sort of winning a medal or something. You know, the really key thing about conclave was not getting your elected yourself. I mean, you, you know, obviously that would be amazing, but the really important thing was to make sure that you were on the winning side, so that the person who was elected owed their election to you, because that would mean that they would offer you, you would you know, that would give you there would be favors. To be granted, you would get the press. You, know, you, you didn't give the you gave the jobs to when you were elected pope. You gave the jobs to the people who looked, you know, supported you. You didn't give it 
you didn't hand them out randomly to people who loathed you. You know, it's it's it. But so there's a whole sort of second level, if you like. It's not just individual wins. It's 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 um it's about it's more factual. Does that make sense? Yeah, you have to align yourself with the right people to get what you want. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that was how that's how you did success in Rome in any conceit in all in all sort of walks of life, you know, shopkeepers, jewellers, um, money lenders, uh, architects, every, you know, whatever they, you, you had to, if you could spot a rising star and, you know, and you get it right, your fortune's made because you rise with them. So he dies then in 1572 without obviously becoming Pope, which is what he wanted, but he didn't get. Um how does that? What happens then to the Deste family? No, the that's very that is interesting because um, the by this stage, um, Hippolyto's um, brother dies in fifteen fifty nine during the conclave, and the um, his his son, so Hippolyto's nephew, becomes um, duke and marries. Um, several times and fails to have any children and as part of the deal with between the second uh, Pius the fourth's successor and Cosimo various sort of edicts against um the the, the Este family are passed one of which is that any um that papal fiefs cannot be inherited by illegitimate sons and um or illegitimate children i mean i'm sorry men i mean i'm sorry what i mean is i don't mean it, it can be a cousin or something like that it doesn't have to be it does have to be male but the point is that ferrara was a papal fief as opposed to mantua which was a imperial fief and it meant that when this and this nephew um hippolyta's nephew didn't he couldn't stop Hippolyta couldn't stop this legislation going through. And when his, it became clear that his nephew was never going to have any children. And it seems that there were, he had some sort of, um, I suppose you might call it structural or physical abnormality. Um, uh, it's not, I mean, it's not entirely clear what was wrong with him, but, but he, he couldn't have children. I mean, he couldn't sire children. And the, um, um, and so when, he dies in um, 15, the nephew dies uh, um, in 1598. Ferrara gets, the Pope seizes Ferrara and takes it back from the Este family. So the poor old Este family are relegated to being Dukes of Modena, as opposed to Dukes of Ferrara and Modena. And, um, but I, I mean, that of course is, you know, that's one of the reasons, as it happens, that's for us historians, that's a fanta- it's truly fantastic because the reason that all these, um, the Apolito's pa- papers and the papers of all his relations have survived is because they were just all stuffed into a, you know, into, into a palace in Modena and just left and um, nobody interfered with them. Nobody, I mean, Modena's famous now because it's, um, you know, it's where Ferrari operate from very near Modena but it's um and there's balsamic vinegar as well it's a beautiful it's another this is another beautiful little place but it's um it's it, it was off the beaten track of it missed it nobody sacked it during the second world war um 
nobody sacked it during the First World War. It's, you know, basically all this stuff has survived because it was just anyway. So it as it has, happens, it has its advantages, but um, um, but it was very unfortunate for you know for um, the Estee family that Hippolyte. Well, Hippolyte couldn't. You know, I mean, the old age is nothing you can do. But um, the um, Hippolyte's nephew, the Duke, his younger brother was also a cardinal, and they also failed to persuade the successive popes to change the legislation. Mary, that was that was in so much detail, and I love it. I, I'm I'm sold. You're the first person to sell me on the Renaissance. And- <laughs> Before. I haven't even told you. You haven't even heard the best bit, <laughs> you know, which is that um, you just have to hear briefly that Cosimo got ensured that Pius V was elected, and who was a, a, an important church reformer, and he literally did everything, arsed well, and you know, truly, and of course was made. He wasn't made king of Tuscany, but he was made Grand Duke of Tuscany and took precedence over all the other Italian princes, and um, it was just appalling but anyway that's the way these things happen he um he didn't get his comeuppance basically no he did he did well the medici got their comeuppance i mean if if, he would have been furious with his you know great grandsons cosimo um i mean he had some he was succeeded by two sons his two sons and then um several you know the son the, the, the the offspring that of the second son um and they just got more more utterly appallingly decadent as the um as the dynasty went on and just sort of collapsed in in sort of either the last grand duke was um a complete drunkard who used to throw up out of the window of his carriage all over the roads as he was drive driven through the city Ugh. Mary, you need, to, you need to come back and uh, we can we can talk more about this. But can you remind our listeners before we finish the name of your book and where they can get it? Um, you can buy it on Amazon or you can check my website, uh, which is mary.hollingsworth, sorry, mary-hollingsworth.com. And you, uh, it's called The Princes of the Renaissance. Can people get it in their local bookstores? Um, they, they will be able to by the end of the month, by the end of February, sorry. Fantastic. And the, the, the cover picture is Ludovico Gonzaga sitting on his chair, talking to his, in his throne, talking to his secretary. And under the chair is the dog. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing, Mary. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Join us tomorrow. We were thrilled to uh, have with us Fred Logval of Harvard to talk all about the first in his two-part biography of JFK. So tomorrow we cover JFK up to 1956. So that's his privileged upbringing, the beginnings of a political career and World War II. So don't miss out on that one. And then because it's Valentine's Day and because Beth nagged me, we will be debating down the pub history's most romantic act uh this is there are only two people in the room maybe three if alina can be bothered uh 
Charlie, Beth and Lena who will want to do this. Everyone else is a cynic and will gag. So it'll be interesting to see what stories people come up with. Don't miss out on that one. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.